Welcome to No Truck Stops, a Pac-12 football podcast. I'm Carlos at Equity Brian. Joining me live right at the last second. Uh, she's not on the stream yet because just, she just got here. I don't Avery, know what it is, but whenever we go live, my computer decides to fucking kick me out of StreamYard every time. Yeah, yeah. And it's we, fine. I'm here now. And we got some internet issues, but it's all right. We will figure it out. And also, Greg Apinanamorphs. I'm, st- I'm still mourning the Pac-12. Uh, I'm going to just start putting games of Pac-12 After Dark Past as my background now. <laughs> it's a it's a good one. That's a good one. And angry boy Matthew Burton at no pit stops. That's good. I think I might um, just put up like my favorite uh, Pac-12 conference statements. I, oh, I think that's that good. Might be mine. I like that. <laughs> uh, you know what they got to do? They got to bring out Michael Mothershit out of retirement for one last dance. Just one more. Just bring him back one more time. Uh, thank you to those of us who are joining us live on YouTube. Subscribe to the channel. Like this video. We're just under 30 subscriptions away. We're at 71 subscriptions. Maybe we've gone up since like 1244 a.m. last night. We're 30 subscriptions from giving out our preview magazine for free to the public. So be sure to subscribe. Podcast listeners, we haven't forgotten about you. Uh, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll review our favorite reviews as they come up. Or read our favorite reviews. And lastly, join our Patreon. We post uh, exclusive content up there. We posted a quick reaction to how things were unfolding before the Pac-12 actually died. Uh, we posted a preview of the Arizona schools on Wednesday. We have our preview magazine that you can access immediately. All of that at NoTruckStops.com. Um, so today we were originally going to have part two of our preview episode, but the Pac-12 died. Uh, you know, like 48 hours before we actually live stream this. So we've got to pivot. Uh, I think there's more details that have emerged since we last spoke to y'all on Friday early afternoon. So we'll go over those. Uh, we'll talk super briefly about how we think the Pac-12 schools will fare in their new digs. And joining us, we'll have a special guest uh, in Parker Fleming at Stats of War on Twitter. He'll join us a little bit later to talk about this news and maybe a little bit of stats. Um, so... Let's just get right into what has emerged over the weekend. Let's start by recapping what happened since Friday at about noon, because a lot has happened. A lot's been revealed. Uh, We can sort of piece all of those together. I think we're going to have more in-depth thoughts on these pieces of news. We'll probably post those on Patreon later. But first, let's start with the most consequential news that happened since we last spoke. Uh, Probably the most predictable. I don't think any of us thought otherwise, but ASU, Utah, and Arizona all left for the Big 12 officially, leaving just Washington State, Oregon State, Stanford, and Cal to fend for themselves. Uh, We don't know at all what's happening with those schools yet, but we did get some more info on the numbers and TV deals and on TV deals and all that. Uh, We now know that the Apple TV deal was for $25 million per school per year. Uh, We know that it had some incentives where the numbers got bumped up to $30 million uh, per school per year if the Pac-12 had hit 1.7 million subscribers and would have gone all the way up to $50 million per school per year if the league had hit 5 million subscribers. We also now know that Oregon and UW left the Pac-12 for half shares at the Big Ten. They'll be getting about $32.5 million a year while Utah, ASU, and Arizona joined the Big 12 at full shares at $31.5 million a year. Um, There's an article on The Athletic detailing a lot of this and how it all went down. But Matt, I'm going to kick it to you first. Just a quick reaction to these numbers or the news that the four corners left or anything on uh, any of the details of how it all went down. I think that the the – the context of the numbers that is interesting to me is in that context of like Oregon and Washington kind of being the first ones to, to make the step. Right. And, and to really like take advantage of that big 10 offer that, 
yeah, it doesn't look that great. Um, I, I do think that it is very fair to be sitting there at the the adults table. Like I, I get that idea and I get the importance of setting yourself up where you're already in these conferences for the next wave. But I do think that like when you think about the next wave of realignment, I completely understand that these conferences have never been in the business of kicking anybody out. They're not going to have a choice in the next wave. There is no additional realignment that doesn't involve getting rid of your Rutgers and your Vanderbilts and, and schools that are not committing to football. The, the next wave is very much a removing yourself from the NCAA as far as football goes and going independent and really just becoming a sub NFL. So that, that to me is kind of a big part of where I, I just don't fully understand like why the rush to get into the big 10 specifically these numbers where, yeah, you could be at a similar number and I can be a lock for the playoff, <laughs> you know, like this I, right now, like you've got to be a top four team in the big 10 to, to make this 12 team playoff. Right. And, and I completely understand that like the big 10 is going to get all of those bids and the, the, the PAC 12 would be a one bid lead, a one bid league. But I just, I, I don't think that like, I don't think that Washington and Oregon are setting themselves up for a better next five years. And I don't necessarily think that the difference in the 2030 realignment is, is anything more than marginal. Greg, what about you? You have thoughts about uh, these numbers and all the other details that have emerged? Yeah, so just maybe this is less about the numbers and just more about we talked about how expected it was for the big, the schools that went to the Big 12 to go there. Uh, I thought it was just so funny how desperately Utah and especially Arizona State did not want to make that move. And that's not illustrated by anything better then Ray Anderson's quote saying, I promise I'm not going to Morgantown. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Great just, quote. Fantastic Big quote. same. Big same. Which is just, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's so funny how desperately these two schools were just like, no, please let the Pac-12 survive. I, I can't be associated. I can't be associated with those Big 12 schools. And yet they still had to end up going. Uh, outside of that, I think Matt, summed it up really well uh yeah it's it's kind of weird that the big 10 offer was so bad and like the pac-12 offer was not as bad as we thought but whatever i i just have one thing to say and it's that um utah accomplished what byu has been trying to do for over a decade in like six hours so yeah that's very fucking funny and byu is not even a full member of the big 12 right no, yeah, That's Utah right. will be making more God. money than BYU for Silver the first like, two years. <laughs> that is right. <laughs> Extremely good stuff, yeah. To your point, Matt, I mean, it's like, I, when I saw the number that it was, first it was like 30, and then later on, I think there were more details came out, it was 32.5 million a year. I'm like, there's no way the Pac-12 could not have matched that number. There's many things about the way that this unfolded and the details of it all that just feel like there was maybe some gross incompetence happening. I think one thing the athletic article did not mention was any discussion of unequal revenue sharing. Cause at $25 million, the, the deal was at $25 million per school per year. If you did some other uneven revenue sharing, you could have gotten Oregon and UW to 
forty million dollars a year. You could have gotten ASU and Utah to thirty million dollars a year, and you could have given everyone else a a pretty you know it, it wasn't a lot, but it's a lot more than they're going to get sixteen seventeen million dollars a year. Uh, I did not see any discussion in the athletic article about unequal revenue sharing. Maybe they talked about it and it just wasn't part of the reporting. But if they did not talk about it, if that was like not even a, a, a point of discussion that was not brought up by anyone, that is a massive failure on the part of George Klyokov. Um, I, I think that George Klyokov had to bring that up. Uh, he had to get – he had to go to Oregon and UW and say, look, you're the linchpin here. We're willing – I'm going to try to get everyone to get on board with unequal revenue sharing if you sign this deal. I'm going to try to get you all – this much uh, money to get you there. That's the biggest thing. If that did not get discussed, and it makes me think it wasn't, right? It makes me feel like it wasn't a point of discussion because it wasn't brought up in the athletic article. That's that's just gross incompetence from George Klyokov at the last minute. But Matt, you have something to say. I, I get what you're saying as far as like, this should have been brought up. Unequal revenue sharing has never worked and will never work for the majority of a conference. Like I understand this idea of keeping a team like happy and, and engaged into your school. But like Texas got their own fucking network and got to keep all of the funds from that and still left. Like this is not something that's going to keep Washington and Oregon from going to a big 10 eventually. And so I very much am like, I, I completely I get the idea of like this should have been suggested. It's just it's that that's never going to work. That keeps getting brought up. You look at what's going on with like Florida State. It's just it's not that's not how conferences work. That's not going to work. And it and it doesn't incentivize still not removing yourself and still not moving on to a bigger, better opportunity. What hit but would it have kept Oregon and Washington around for a few years? That's and I don't think so. You don't. You think they would have? They would have offered unequal revenue sharing, and then Oregon and UW would have bolted. They would have turned down the offer anyway. Yeah. Okay. You think they would have? You think they would have looked at this and said, "I've got forty million dollars a year from the Pac-12 with no additional travel costs on top of what we already do, versus thirty-two and a half million dollars a year from the Big Ten with ten million dollars additional in travel costs, much like UCLA and USC." And you, they would have. I have a hard time believing they would have turned that down. Also, you have to ask them anyway, like regardless of whether it has worked in the past or it hasn't, it kept Texas and Oklahoma in the Big Big 12 for 10 years. And that time enabled the Big 12 to figure something out so that they could survive. I think you absolutely have to ask. uh, And and I also think we don't know what's going to happen in five or six years. I think Oregon and Washington are making a huge gamble coming in at half shares in the Big 10 because I don't think sports media rights, the landscape is going to look the same in – I don't know, 2030. Like, I just think it's going to be different. I think the money might not be there uh, to pay for sports media rights. Uh, We were already seeing Disney talking about spinning off ESPN into some other entity to try to alleviate the costs of having an ESPN. I don't know. You just sort of wait it out. Um, But But the value of being able to regularly play UCLA and USC, right? Because they're going to play those teams every single year. And then being able to mix in a Michigan, Ohio State, Nebraska, like teams like that. Like $8 million is so marginal when compared to that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's maybe $18 million considering, again, the additional travel costs. But, Let's move on to talk about – you're bringing up a good point. Let's move on to talk about how these schools will actually fare in their new conferences because I think there's real questions, and I think revenue share has to be a big part of that 
this this uh, conversation about how these schools will actually do in the Big Ten, how they'll do in the Big Twelve. Um, so Avery, I'm going to start with you. Who do you think is wor- is the most worse off in their new conference uh, of the eight schools who have left so UCLA, far? UCLA probably would be my guess. Um, I think considering they're always going to be kind of in a weird position because they share the same town as USC. Um, but like they haven't been super successful <laughs> in the Pac-12 and that's against much easier competition. So yeah, they're probably not going to do great. I don't think the Big 12 is that big of a jump from the Pac-12. Like it's probably easier competition. So I'm sure Arizona will do a little bit better. And I, th- I expect ASU and Utah to be two of the better teams in the big 12 matt do you agree is it ucla i think that i think that ucla takes the biggest step back i think that like look it's colorado like colorado's gonna fare oh, the I worst. About colorado. <laughs> they're going to <laughs> but they're going to they're going to maintain their status right like like they will maintain a last place bottom four status so um i do think that ucla is is going to be the biggest step back because they were middle of the pack to like we could jump up every five years in the pack 12. They will be able to jump up to the middle of the pack. They will be a lower half team in this, in this big 10 league. And so I, I definitely think that that is something. And, and honestly, like Washington might be the next one. It, it might be Washington after that. Um, Oregon at least has the infrastructure to be able to pay for their NIL. Uh, I, I don't know that Washington is going to be able to effectively, you know, absorb those travel costs, absorb that $18 million that Carlos threw out and pay for it. Yeah, did roster. you just pull that number out of your ass? The $18 million? Oh, the $18 million. Me? Uh, I mean, it's $32.5 million, which is $8, you know, $8 million, $7.5 million fewer than, you know, a hypothetical $40 million in unequal revenue share. And then it's $10 million in additional travel costs. And that's from UCLA. UCLA said oh. when they did when they sort of did the analysis on this, said it was going to cost them $10 million more in travel costs. So I don't know. I don't think that's a few million dollars. I don't think $17, $18 million is, is nothing. And that's why my answer is I think it's one of Oregon and Washington. I, I can't tell which one. Oregon has more investment, uh, obviously, how long is that going to have uh, last with Phil Knight? I don't know. Uh, I think that's a real question. Phil Knight's not going to be here forever. Um, he's getting old, and he is bankrolling a lot of Oregon's stuff right now. So I, I think it's one of those two. And the reason is is because they're coming in at half shares. Like I don't know that we can fully expect Oregon and Washington to compete the same way that they have for six years while basically being on sanctions uh, in the most important way, which is money. They're getting half as much as everyone else in the Big Ten. They're getting half as much as their counterparts on the West Coast and USC and UCLA. People are like, and Reed is here in the chat sort of talking about, well, they had to make this move. Uh, it's going. I think there's some real potential for long-term damage to both Oregon and Washington, more so for Oregon because it is a newer brand. Um, I, I think that I, – I think – that there's some potential here for them to be at a competitive disadvantage for six years in a way that makes them look less appealing in six years by 2030. There, I, like I, I get that UCLA has like been a, a bit of a like a, a moribund program and kind of a weird program, but they have never had to uh, work with half as much as everyone else, and that's what Oregon and Washington are going to be doing. 
Sorry. Uh, Carlos, do you believe that USC's mediocre performance the last 10 years is because of sanctions then? Is that, <laughs> is I mean, that the, the argument that you're making? I, I, I think uh, I think USC fans might say that. I think they, their mediocre performance well, they and, <laughs> and, and their lack of institutional commitment, which is a big part of that. But and that's again, why UCLA is going to fare badly say, in the Big Ten. I would say that having half as much money as everyone else is actually uh, much worse than losing like 10 scholarships. That's a good point. This is really important because how else is UCLA supposed to pay for Chip Kelly to go seven and five in a good year? Without all this money. How are they supposed that's, to pay for all that that's seafood? That's what you have to remember. <laughs> the seafood. Yeah. How, how are we going to afford Chip Kelly's nice five-star restaurant meals for the team if they're not making $100 million in the Big Ten? This is very important stuff, and that's going to be the difference between UCLA being better than Oregon and Washington, surely, despite the fact that Oregon and Washington are just consistently better run athletic programs. Suddenly money doesn't matter. I'm hearing $30 million a year is just not a big gap. Like, it's fucking crazy to me that we've gone through this whole thing and, like, now money is, like, not, oh, it doesn't matter. $30 million? Like, who cares? That's, until that, like, Oregon and Washington can make that up easily. Come on. Let's be let's be real here. Until players can be paid out of that pot, it it's marginal. Okay. I mean, coaching staff salaries are going to be paid out of that pot. Is Oregon or Oregon and Washington going to be as a little bit tighter with their money with staff and recruiting and all this other stuff when they're making half as much money as everyone else. As I, soon I, as Bill Belichick and Mike Tomlin are coaching at Pitt and Rutgers, I'll believe you. So, th- <laughs> like, so th- that will matter. So then Absolutely. what are we doing? This whole, what is this coaches. whole realignment shit for? If it's like $30 million is suddenly not a big deal. It's, like, it who is, cares? They're operating. It is a bet on the conferences will not be kicking you out. Yeah. it's an, They're operating under the assumption that in five years, everything will be the same. And they'll be making lots of money. Okay. I mean, I'm at. I'm of the opinion that like, if if we're to believe that m- money matters for winning, then having more of it enables you to be more competitive. That it's it, for some reason that was uh, that's an insane that's an insane thing to to bring up. But uh, okay, App- apparently Oregon and Washington will be fine making half as much as everyone else. But grapes, you had you wanted to change the conversation, shift gears a little bit. What were you thinking? Yeah. Um- I think since you made the topic who is worse off, this is so much more than just like the success for the football programs. I think all of these schools are going to be worse off in the way of other sports, specifically Olympic sports. UW and Oregon have really good softball teams. UW's kind of known for their softball team. We've seen what the softball players have been saying on Twitter this week, basically that they didn't go to these schools to be traveling across the country to be playing in the Midwest they didn't they wanted to play on the Pac-12 stage in a conference that's known for the sport and they're not getting that anymore and i think it's like very obvious that sports outside of basketball and football are going to suffer because of this and i don't follow the Big 10 i don't follow the Big 12 i don't really know what their non-football basketball sports look like but as far as i'm aware the Pac-12 really excels in a lot of these other sports, and I think all of these schools are worse off because of these moves. I think that's true. I think they are. I think uh, I would say that's probably less true for a Utah or Colorado because they are a little more proximal to some of those other schools. I think it's less true, but the thing that you have to remember is, I mean, the Pac-12 was the best conference for basically every women's sport. Uh, And so Utah, who has an elite women's basketball team and an elite gymnastics Mm -hmm. team the competition just gets worse you're not 
you're not as on as big of a stage. Pac-12 women's basketball was just so good these last few years, and I think that's a big reason Utah's team has gotten so good. They're going to walk into the Big 12 as maybe the best team immediately, and uh, the gymnastics team with Oklahoma leaving is just going to be miles better than everybody else in that conference, and I think they're going to suffer for that reason as well. Uh, It's like leaving the SEC of these sports and going to the big 12 uh, it's it's definitely a downgrade <laughs> yeah i think that's fair and i also you know it's it's sort of like uh, it, it sucks either way because in the big 10 i think you do have some competitive programs mm-hmm. and non-revenue sports in the big 10 um i think that is not a non-negligible thing um you mean but, wrestling and hockey <laughs> like what I mean, uh, I mean, I, I okay. Uh, I mean, Ohio State and Michigan are not competitive in other sports. I don't know. Do you know? No, no they are. Basketball. <laughs> they, they like, are. I, don't, I, don't I mean, watch truck stops. They're not, they're not competitive in ba- in baseball. They're not competitive sure. in softball. Michigan like, won a national championship in gymnastics a few years ago. Yeah, there you go. I mean, I think I think they te- I think of the existing conferences, the ones that are left. I, think the I would Big say is it's the, best. the Big Ten is probably has maybe the SEC is great in gymnastics, um, but I think the Big Ten is probably the one that has the best uh, you know best profile of non revenue sports across several sports. So I mean you're right though it is a downgrade like the Pac-12 is like dominated in in several sports many sports if if not most of them. So I think that's uh, I think that's a good point. I I also think like competitively just bringing it back to football I think uh is that I don't know Oregon, Washington and UCLA immediately enter like below four there are four programs ahead of them in terms of their stature and their positioning and what they mostly do year in and out like Ohio State and Michigan locks I think better programs than all of the Pac-12 schools that are entering Penn State damn close to a lock um they probably deserve to be there and then it's probably USC um and then you're talking about Oregon Washington Oregon and Washington and UCLA and you know that's not to say anything about Michigan State and Iowa and all that other stuff so Let's talk real quick before uh, our homie uh, Parker joins us. Our homie, we haven't even met him yet. Uh, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about which schools you think might end up being better off as a result of this. Either non-revenue sports, basketball, football. We haven't even talked about basketball. Greg and I are going to have to jump on at some point and talk talk about this from the hoops perspective. Um, but who do you think might be better off? Greg, I'll start with you. Is there a school that you think might end up being better off as a result of this? Uh, so this is completely ignoring basketball because it's a disaster for Utah's basketball team. But Utah's football team is in a great spot right now because they're going to walk into the Big 12 with the second-best roster narrowly behind TCU and a coaching staff that's been around as one, two conferences before. Like, Utah is in such a good position in football to just continue dominating in the way that they have been over the last few years. Uh, will that continue when Whittingham retires? Maybe you have less access to California recruiting and maybe that hurts Utah a little bit. But I don't know. I think this is a really good spot for Utah in football to just basically maintain what they've been able to do. Will it be good for the other sports? I don't think so. But uh, as far as landing spots go, I think they are going to have the softest landing. Big win for Utah fans as well. Huge culture fit for the Big 12. They're going to fit in really nicely. Uh, they've already they've already started integrating into Big 12. They like love 
their new Big 12 friends. So I'm really happy. I don't think for them. they do. I think they hate them. Oh, they love the, they love the attention they get. <laughs> Are you kidding me? It's the same way they treat BYU fans outside of Rivalry Week. Like the funny, That's the funny hate tweets that make them like, oh, but at the end of the day, we're all friends type shit. Like they, they love that <laughs> bullshit. You have any idea how much Utahns love winning over somebody yeah. who hates them? That's fair. Yeah. This is the entire mission. <laughs> it's hilarious how much Big 12 fans hate Utah though. Oh, it's oh. so funny. It's it hilarious <laughs> how like online Big 12 fans are. Like they, the idea of like how Utah has treated the internet and Twitter as a message board in the Pac-12 and like it's just just where they are like the big 12 is doing the exact same shit like <laughs> it's it's like watching a bunch of fucking utah twitter okay like uh, communities so <laughs> like uh, you can tweet anything about the big 12 and you've got like a hundred people like getting all fucking mad about it <laughs> um but it is funny that they're directing their ire towards utah fans i have noticed that avery i don't know they really hate utah fans yeah it's because it's because that utah fans um, Utah fans like love doing this thing where they think they're better than everyone else, but then like I feel like during the season it's gonna go down a little I, bit. I, I I don't know. Right now it feels like Utah is is the USC of the Big Twelve, which is crazy. It's like <laughs> they're the program that has everything, and like everyone's I'm gonna be pissed that. off at them, and Utah's gonna be looking down. It's going I'm to be. It's going right to be. Now. I will say I am. Uh, I'm very sad about the conference. Uh, I'm like very. Like it, I'm, I'm, I'm very sad about it, but I will kind of enjoy watching Utah kick the shit out of everyone in the Big Twelve. I think that'll be a lot of fun. Um, so there's some silver linings to to be had here. Greg, what about you? Is there, or sorry, Matt, what about you? Is there a team that you think will end up faring better off in their new conference? Well, surely the the sleeping giant has to wake this time, right? <laughs> surely that'll happen. Uh, Are you talking Arizona, about ASU? Arizona State surely has to. <laughs> has to come out of their of their per, uh perpetual seven and six uh position in in the world and in in the pac 12 so i that's really the only thing that is interesting to me again we continue to hear like how much of a sleeping giant asu is and how great they could be maybe this change will get them there let's see yeah i think uh I'm curious. I mean, it sort of feels like uh, these are like really interesting trajectories here and, and like events like where suddenly like Texas A&M suddenly became like a, a weird version of a power as soon as they moved to the SEC for whatever reason. Um, maybe it was money. Maybe it was just a new coach. Just things just fell into their lap and it worked. I feel like that could happen for ASU and ASU has got lesser competition to deal with. It doesn't have to you know, always, always have to deal with USC in the South. Um, doesn't have to always deal with like, you know, back in the day at Stanford, there's not going to be any of those programs there. So yeah, ASU fair grapes. Is there a team that you think a program, a football team, uh, or, or, you know, even a non-revenue team that you think might fare better in, uh, in their new conference? I don't know. I think like any of the potential for faring better is like drowned out by all the falling out that's going to happen because of this decision yes like at the end of the day this will not be a net positive for anyone Mm -mm. it seems like new and exciting right now and i think it's easy to be like oh we're going to be making more money i'm seeing a lot from uw and oregon fans like oh but in five years we'll be making this much money in in 10 years we'll be making 100 million a year like it's easy to say that but at the end of the day i feel very confident in saying that in like three years from now everyone's going to be upset that they <laughs> moved conferences. Yeah. 
Greg, what were you going to say? Uh, in terms of basketball, mm-hmm. I think this is a win for Arizona over UCLA in that That's basketball rivalry. That's interesting. Wow. That's a hot take. That's a hot take. Arizona is going to indisputably the best basketball conference now, and UCLA is going to basketball hell. Uh, nobody likes <laughs> Big Ten basketball. Ask Bryce, you know. Bryce hates nothing more in this world than watching Big Ten basketball. <laughs> Our homie Bryce Hendricks is yeah. who he's talking about. UCLA has to play them every year now, whereas Arizona is going to the Big 12 to play against schools like Kansas and Baylor. It's a really good conference for basketball. And Houston. Uh, it's, yeah, Houston, too. Houston, I should have mentioned them first. Cincinnati. Cincinnati, traditionally very good. Every te- like If you look at the net rankings for last year, the worst two teams by like a decent margin – in the new Big 12 or Utah and BYU. And Utah was like a mid-tier Pac-12 team. Uh, so I, I think this is a big win for Arizona's basketball team. Yeah, so I think that's... Insane, go ahead, go ahead, insane casual response to that is that, like, I understand the Big 10 as being, like, the second best basketball league as far as, like, how they are viewed nationally. And UCLA is going to walk in and kick the shit out of that league. <laughs> like, I think that the perception is that UCLA is going to jump intensely yeah but it's so because they're gonna get brought down by the caliber of their competition and it's gonna affect them in the postseason well the 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 issue is that the big 10 has a lot of they are overrated every single year uh that's that that it's like Mm -hmm. they go into a worse conference but somehow have better perception like it's crazy i think that Mm -hmm. actually might end up working out well for ucla and that was that was my answer too was ucla basketball they're gonna go in it's gonna be an easier conference they're not going to have to deal with any blue bloods. Uh, they will be the blue blood in basketball, and they're gonna they're like they're gonna get a ton of hype if they run that conference. People are going to talk about them as the number one overall seed because of that. So, all right, let's move on uh, to our next segment. Talk to our special guest Parker Fleming at Stats War. Parker, welcome. Uh, Parker is a Nerdstat purveyor. We have really enjoyed his work over the past few years as Nerdstat enjoyers ourselves uh he compiles really helpful tables on expected points added for every fbs team in the country uh does a lot of analytic work posts some uh, fascinating advanced analytic work uh on twitter he's written all over the internet uh over the past few years we're really excited to get to talk to him parker parker thank you for joining us yeah thanks so much for having me i i I admit there's a little bit of whiplash there i hopped in and someone said utah was like the mid-tier one of the worst teams in the pac-12 so i had to calibrate to oh, we're talking about basketball. And then I thought, oh, God, please don't ask me about basketball because I don't know. <laughs> we did not have any bet. We didn't even plan to talk about basketball today. So, <laughs> Well, thanks for joining us again, uh, Parker. When we reached out to you, all we wanted to do was talk football stats with you. But as you know, a lot's changed over the past 48 hours. The conference that we cover has died a quick and swift death, really not just 40 hours ago. And I think we'd be remiss not to get your thoughts and reactions to that. What I'm curious as a as a fan of college football, as uh, someone who's in the Big Twelve, uh, at, at least sort of connected to Big Twelve programs, what went through your mind as you uh, realized the Pac-12 was fading away? 
Yeah, well, one, I was really glad that I didn't take my like week off Twitter vacation kind of that I do every summer. I did I did that during the week. Everyone was arguing whether Margot Robbie was mid or not, not during the realignment. <laughs> so I can only imagine, like, glad to have missed all that and glad to kind of understand what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of pontificating and a lot of pearl clutching and a lot of um, lamentation happening about realignment in general. Um, but and, and, and I never want to be like, you got to read the writing on the wall. But I mean... We saw that waiting till the next TV contract was not a stable equilibrium when Texas and Oklahoma bailed uh, on the on the Big Twelve and went to the SEC. Um, I, I think that there is some part of me that is wary that the agglomeration of um, special interest in college football into certain power centers is going to be net good for um, for the game. But I am intrigued by. I, I might be a conspiracy theory in this. I still think the long term plan is like just to get out from under the. Uh, NCAA's thumb and then redo college football uncoupled from all the Olympic sports and get some regional, um, you know, some regional conferences back there, maybe restore some rivalry. So I'm, I'm like vaguely skeptical that this is just going to be uh, let's, let's uh, agglomerate and then let's realign uh, kind of in our own way. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is, it is sad and certainly hard for, for college football fans who, who, you know, have nothing to do in this. have given their money to the teams and are not getting treated well by the suits. Um, so th- that, that in a way is a little bit sad, but obviously you can kind of understand the incentives for why teams are doing this and why teams would be, you know, disinclined to believe that, you know, GK is going to be able to pull off this deal that he's been talking about for two years now. And they said, Hey, finally, we just can't, we just can't wait around and trust that that's going to happen. We've got to do something. And so mm-hmm. uh, kind of a, kind of a, a back and forth week, but it's certainly understandable in terms of, you know, the, the, the general axiom that people are going to respond to incentives and the incentives for the realignment are, are pretty strong here. Sure. I, you talked about like the, the waiting until the next TV deal situation that occurred with Oklahoma and Texas. We've had a lot of debate about what happened with Oregon and Washington and whether or not, you know, really incentivizing them with unequal revenue sharing, or was there a way that the PAC 12 could have saved them for four to five more years? To me, I see a lot of comparisons with the, the Oklahoma and Texas situation, obviously at a much lower scale. Uh, do you see those same similarities and do you feel like that would have been tenable at all if, if there was some sort of offer like that available for Oklahoma or for Oregon and Washington? What's interesting to me with Oregon and Washington particularly, and I don't know everyone's affiliation and certainly don't mean to step on any toes or, or throw sand in anyone's eyes step here, but away. Um, <laughs> Oklahoma and Texas since realignment. So, so as much as TCU and West Virginia felt like, man, we got the lottery ticket. This is awesome. We're in the Big 12. We're moving on up. Um, Oklahoma and Texas feel like they got a little extra shit stuck to their shoes. That's kind of how they felt in that first mm-hmm. round of realignment. And, I mean, given, frankly, Oklahoma's play on the field, they've deserved to feel like that. Texas, a little bit more of a legacy uh, sentiment there. But Oklahoma, I mean, for what, eight years in a row there, it was uh, the Big 12 was – is Oklahoma going to beat the shit out of everyone or are they going to beat the shit out of most teams and then just beat one team by one score? You know, uh, it was, it was just absolute dominance. And so they deserve to feel like, Hey, we, we, we deserve better than this. Um, I don't get that sense from Washington, Oregon, even you see at USC, UCLA that they thought, Oh, we're demonstrably such a level and kind above what's the rest of our conferences that we want to go search out options. This does feel like a move where it's like, Hey, we're going to get left behind. If we don't be aggressive here, the PAC 12, you know, it's hard to get that Western engagement like they do have in the, in the, in the, in the Southeast, for instance, um, and, and throw in, you know, sprinkle a little, if you want to call it East coast media bias, just, you know, the focus of attention goes differently because people go to bed earlier and don't see all the PAC 12 games. (laughs) But, um, I think this was a lot less, oh, I'm better than everyone else and want to get what's mine. And more so like, Hey, we want access to the top 
of the uh, the top of uh, of college football, whatever that top level is. We want to be a part of that, um, and 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 made that move. So it, it was interesting because it was it did feel. I mean, it was the same move that that Oklahoma and Texas made, but it did feel a little bit different in kind. Gotcha. It's a, good, it's a, it's a great points, um, and and something that we don't really have access to as people. We're so focused on the Pac-12 and have intentionally closed ourselves off from everything else that that's an interesting parallel, and I really appreciate the comparison. That's super insightful. Let's move on to talk about nerd stats. That's what the people came here for. That's what I'm here for specifically. Uh, so let's let's try to put realignment aside for now. I know that's going to be hard to do, and talk about actual Pac-12 football uh, while we while we still can. So, uh, as many know, Parker, you primarily situ- situate yourself as someone who leans on, uh, you know, expected points added, uh, uh, one of several different uh, advanced metrics out there. It's abbreviated EPA. For the audience who might not know what EPA is, and definitely not me, because obviously I know everything there is <laughs> to know about EPA, uh, what, what is expected points added and, and what kinds of interpretations do you think you can draw from it? Expected points added is a really, really nice elevator pitch. All right. Say there's a team and they got um, for, they got three yards on first and 10, and then they got three yards on third and three. If you're using something like yards per play to figure out efficiency, you're saying that team averages three yards per play. Um, but the value of those yards is not equal on both of those, right? Three yards on first and 10, bad play. Unless you're a service academy doing a little bit of different math, but generally, um, or maybe Chip Kelly, who's trying to lull you into a false sense of security. (laughs) I don't know. But the the three yards on first down, you're like, ah, that's not great. Three yards on third and three, baby, we're cooking. The drive's going, right? And so what EPA does, expected points added is, it translates yards to points in context. It says based on down, distance, yard line, um, uh, and a couple, you know, state variables. Are you inside the red zone? Yada, yada. Um, what's the score of the game? Because that also matters for how, how teams are going to do. And it just says, how valuable uh, was this play in terms of increasing the probability you're going to score? So for every play, we have a point value starting. We have a point value at the end. EPA is just a subtraction of those. What it does is it contextualizes that three yards on first and 10. That's going to be low expected points added. But three yards on third and three is going to be high expected points added. A little bit of a double-edged sword, right? You've got to think about, okay, well, um, one of my favorite stats ever was this PFF graphic that said the top two quarterbacks in EPA per play on third down runs were Trevor Lawrence and Max Duggan uh, because Trevor Lawrence was like running good plays and Max Duggan was running for his life. You're like, okay, that might not be a good thing about your offense. You've got to contextualize the efficiency there. But generally, it's a way to kind of wrap in uh, efficiency and explosiveness to say how often is your offense uh, on average, improving your state um, and and how efficient are you? Just a way to help us kind of interpret all those moving variables of the different game states because football is not like baseball. Baseball, right? There's one, two, three, or zero runners on base. There are zero, one, two outs, right? Uh, we know the states, they're very, very, very small. The football states are a lot more fluid, a lot more complex, and while certainly finite, are, are much more harder to grasp. And so translating to EPA just helps us understand the value of a play at any given right. point. Meant to, so I, I appreciate that insight. It's meant to give a sort of context for any single play, that not every single play that results in the same amount of yards is, is equal. And I, uh, I think that's, the, that's the super principle, helpful. Uh, the principle of analytics generally is not all X are created equal, not all yards, not all points, not all expected points, not all teams, not all touchdowns. And they're not created equal. We need a little more context. Right. That's not it. all uh, DTR hurdles are <laughs> created equal. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so let's, uh, that is a really helpful insight. So with that lens, let's talk about the real quickly, the last PAC 12 season, 2022, obviously, the Pac-12 was chock full of elite offenses and also plagued by many, many brutal defensive performances up and down the league. 
I'm curious. That's sort of our characterization of the Pac-12. That's sort of how we've been talking about it. That's sort of our the, the narrative uh, about the Pac-12 last year. Is there anything analytically, anything that EPA or any other advanced metrics might tell us to add to the story about uh, either about the Pac-12 broadly or even maybe even a Pac-12 team specifically? I think it's very important to realize that having amazing offenses and bad defenses are not unrelated to each other. Um, and so opponent adjusting uh, is, is very hard for uh, different metrics, right? Like it's, it's, it's hard to fully contextualize how much of Oregon's offensive success is Bo Nix versus look at the defenses that they played and the fact that they were able to score on basically any drive they wanted to. Right. And so you got to, you know, land somewhere in the middle there. If you look at expected points added though, just raw unadjusted, which again, we want to adjust for opponent and get some context, but this is more of a descriptive, just what happened. Um, Four of your top five offenses were in the Pac-12. Washington followed uh, just by USC. UCLA was third. Ohio State was fourth. And then Oregon was fifth in EPA per play. Oregon, the bottom of that of that group, that four, was averaging 0.024 EPA per play. So almost a quarter point of value every time they ran a play on offense, which is just absurd. That's just absolutely absurd. Um, it almost feels like the, the early, you know, the mid-aughts Big 12, where they're just scoring touchdowns left and right. Um and so you you have some really, really good offenses there legitimately that are probably preying on some defenses that aren't as great. If I flip around and start to look at some of these defenses, uh, 130th in EPA per play was Colorado. Uh, 129th was uh, Arizona. You had Stanford there at 127th. <laughs> you had... Who's another good Washington's defense, 117th. So first offense, 117th defense. That's a Mike Leach team if I've ever seen one, right? Um, but they, uh, yeah, so they're- Oh, they're going to love hearing yeah. that. Thank you so much. <laughs> I didn't even think about it. <laughs> Uh, right, great. but uh, one one rest in peace. But uh, but two, yeah. Sorry for the sorry for the unintentional Pullman troll there. And then you know USC is 114th. So um, if you adjust those, we're probably looking at offenses in the 20s and defenses in the 60s. Still not great um, in terms of those differences. And a lot of offenses that are not extremely um, extremely balanced. Let me, uh, look, I've had my second cup of coffee. I will ramble. Hop in if you got a question or want to take this anywhere. But um, like if I look at Washington, really, really balanced uh, on offense, second in uh, rushing, second in passing. Um, Oregon, fifth in rushing, uh, seventh in passing. Their rush rates are a little bit different. All these teams are passing a whole lot. So you'd expect that if they ran more, their rushing efficiency would actually come down because of maybe rushing in worse situations and, and, and introduce more variance. But generally, teams that are mixing well in the sense that they are pass forward, um, and they're very efficient at passing, uh, but but again, playing against defenses that are not exactly uh, you know not exactly competitive. That's a good point. I feel like uh, one of the one of the it's helpful that you say that because I think we're constantly going back, and Greg is a is quite the Pac-12 pessimist, and he's constantly telling us, well, those offenses were only good because the defenses were so bad, and it's really hard to do opponent adjustment stuff in college football because we get so little data. There are so they're so the data points are small. We only have twelve games opponent adjusted at that point you're only talking about four additional games um if there is a bowl game involved so we appreciate you sort of validating some of our thinking about that but uh, and providing some insight and context I, i'm curious uh you know if you look back at the 2022 season is there is there a team that you think uh their analytic profile doesn't quite match up with what you feel like you saw um you know whether epa says EPA is suggesting, oh, this is a pretty damn good team, and you're sort of watching being like, I'm not really impressed by this, or vice versa, where you're sort of like, EPA says this team's not that great, but uh, I don't know. I think this is a bit better. Is there a team like that where their analytic profile just doesn't match with match up with what you what you know about them? 
Yeah, so I'll keep this to the Pac-12, and I think this is going to be really spicy. Um, but generally, the way that I think about things involves like splitting into late and early down rushing um, and passing. And so saying, like, how well do you move the ball on early downs? And then how much of that is rushing and how much of that is passing? Understanding that the rushing is going to be a lot more indicative of the quality of opponent you're playing. Like a lot of people can just line up and rush over someone who's worse than them, but that doesn't often translate to, Hey, I can go play Alabama and have a competent rushing offense. Right. So I'm going to lean more towards the passing there. Um, And this is going to be spicy Oregon state. I I love them and I'm rooting for them. I think that they were out ahead of their skis in terms of the metrics because they relied on the rush so much. They were 112th in rush rate over expected, which again, just takes down distance yard line and some state variables about score quarter and all that. And, uh, and just says, how often does the average team in college rush here? They were 112th in that meaning they rushed 7.7 percentage points more than the average team in any given situation. Um, and so their offensive efficiency was 48 uh, but their EPA per pass, 70th. Their EPA per rush, 28th. Their success rate on offense, uh, or excuse me, in uh, offensive passing was 60th in the FBS. They were 18th in rushing success rate. I think that if I plucked Oregon State from last year and put them against league average defenses all season, those numbers are not going to sustain just because they were so reliant on the run and they were so efficient against the run. Uh, it really, to me, says that, uh, that these, these numbers are a little inflated because of the selection of when they were able to run and pass. Now, they run a great offense. They execute it very well. I'm interested with DJU coming in, what the ceiling of that team looks like. But last year, they were a great example of, one, a darling team that a lot of people like to root for, but two, a team that was like, <laughs> I feel like you were really just kind of skating by on some unsustainable stuff this year. Uh, in that same breath, I, of course, have to mention USC, who had some of the most absurd turnover luck, I think, in the history of the sport. <laughs> Last season, the Oregon State game specifically was an example of that, where it was just almost impossible um, that they that they continue to um, to sustain that. Like they, it's like the the Jesse Pinkman meme. Like they can't keep getting away with it, but but they did all season. Um, and so uh-huh. if I look at USC's number, the the one that really gets me is you start to look at one defense, uh, 119th in defensive success rates. Um, but you look at the 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 you know that the two numbers that really stand out for me are one their field position on defense so like starting field position allowed to their opponents was 12th in the nation so very good so their defense was 119th in success rate um 103rd in points per drive and they were still making their opponents face long fields that to me says ah, i think the quality of your defense might be even worse than the numbers but on offense 53rd <laughs> in in starting field position there um and 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 so not you know not astronomical but still very very good that might have inflated what they were able to do just a little bit in the in the same vein there uh, parker i said step away on allegiances you found the one um that is unacceptable <laughs> with the oregon state hate thank you for joining us you have a great day we never want to talk to you again we can blame we can blame all of our Oregon State's problems on Ben Gilbranson and pretend like it didn't happen. So. That's, true. that's true. Well, that's uh, do you guys see Chance uh, Chance Nolan is not on TCU's roster anymore? Um, he uh, oh, he really? transferred TCU and evidently, yeah, evidently things in the quarterback room were worse than uh, Oregon State uh, than, than even Oregon State knew about uh, who they had. So maybe DJU can you know breathe some life into it. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, yeah, I did I, not know that. I understand that DJ has like this like really bad connotation of how good he actually is. People do not understand how bad the quarterbacks right, were right. for Oregon and, State. And <laughs> it can always get worse. And I don't know if we want to talk about Oregon State, someone cut me off. But like the problem with DJU last year was not that he couldn't make good plays. It's just that like 
he could not avoid the disaster play. Like the tail, the distribution of his plays had a very long negative tail. And um, and so if they can just, you know, a little bit of execution with Jonathan, Jonathan Smith, a little bit better quality of competition, and they could just say like, hey, what if we took away the worst 15% of your plays? That's a pretty high ceiling for an offense that frankly did not have an air attack last year. I mean, like, they, they mm. really they really need to develop some downfield passing, and he has the arm for that. Uh, I think the rushing floor is so high, maybe they'll be able to, to, to take away some of those negative plays and and not be in those third and 19 Dabo saying, look, son, you got to bail us out here uh, situations. Think if they can stay ahead of the chains, keep him in a positive uh, game state, that could potentially be a huge update, uh, uh, upgrade mm-hmm. there. I'm, I'm uh, calling it the DJ Revolution with a capital U. I think that's what we're branding it for this fall. So I'm uh, I'm under, I think it could work. <laughs> That'll sell a T-shirt. Um, you may, I mean, you may be an- actively answering this. Is is there a particular unit in the Pac-12 uh, that you're curious about? Whether that be like because those numbers don't match the expectation, or that they've been trending in a particular direction? Is is there any you know offensive or defensive unit that you're particularly looking at for this season? I mean, in terms of I have circled to make sure that I watch all of their games is going to be UCLA's run game um, because one, the Chip Kelly offense is great. It's just very fun, and it feels like. I think at the beginning of last year, we were kind of saying, okay, is Chip Kelly in the wilderness? Are they going to be able to, um, are they going to be able to like do what he wants to do? And last year, the answer was very much like, oh yeah, we're going to be fine. We're going to be okay. Um, they bring in, you know, a potentially five-star quarterback or, or the guy from Kent State, Shields. She, um, I'm confusing it with the sporting goods stores. That's not his last name, but I can't get <laughs> Shields out of my head when I see it. Uh, Shlee, I think it is. Um, and they bring in two guys that I think are just absolutely amazing. Um, one, Kenny Matalolo from Navy gets to come in and focus on uh, helping them with run game and motion and action. And and uh, and that would be a lot of fun, too. They bring in Carson Steele from Ball State. Um, I don't want to I don't want to toot my own horn here. This isn't why it happened. But I know that Chip Kelly and Carson Steele both saw a graph I tweeted about um, UCLA leading the nation in yards before contact and Carson Steele leading the nation in yards after contact and kind of saying, hey, maybe these things could go together and be pretty dangerous. I think if you only kept Carson Steele's yards after contact last year. Um, he would have been like third in total rushing yards last season. And so wow. that's just absolutely so impressive. Wow. So, so hey, competition is going to be way harder than the Mac. Absolutely. Even, even as the Pac-12 defenses are great, but he's going to get into a system that is going to let him cook. So I'm very, very excited about that. Last season, they were second in EPA per rush. They were um, second in rushing success rate. So high volume, high explosiveness. I really like what they could potentially do with the run game there for UCLA. Um the other, the other one that I'm that I'm kind of interested in because I think it matters the most towards like national stuff, which is not always a good way to look at the game. But last season, there was a lot of times you would see someone tweet out like, "Hey, Alex Grinch, why don't you call a timeout and get those guys together?" And you kind of had to think like, "What was Alex Grinch going to do? Say like, be better athletes?" They really just didn't have the guys on the defensive <laughs> side of the ball for USC. So um, I did hear that he's on a cart. So I'm not 100 percent if I'm up to date on this, but like, I think Bear Alexander is potentially a uh, the linchpin of USC's season. I think the USC defense, 114th in EPA per play last year, 89th against the pass, 126th against the rush. For them to have a former five-star SEC dude come in and just be able to disrupt, if he can play two to three downs a series um, and, and really just kind of change the math, get some pressure off of that secondary. Uh, they have a linebacker from Texas whose name's escaping me as well coming in. So potentially some re- reinforcements there. I think USC's defense decides who wins the Pac-12 conference this year. 
Um, I don't think that's unpair, but if they can be somewhere, somewhere, you know, north of 114th in EPA per play on defense, north, you know, being, being less than, um, the, the, the sky's the limit for them. So that to me just has the most, um, benefit. If they don't get that sustainable or unsustainable turnover luck, which I don't think they will, and that defense doesn't get better, it doesn't matter how much better the offense is, right? It does not matter. They, they, they are so bad that they cannot overcome it. If they can just be normal bad on defense, uh, then, we're, then we're talking about an entirely different Pac-12 this fall. He's, that, uh, that's a great point, Parker, and I want to stay with that point. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm going to do what I think parents were on the verge of divorce due to their children and ask you to settle a debate between uh, <laughs> Matthew Hubertson here and I. I because I think this much. is I a. Don't wanna, I don't want to pick which one of you. I am convinced, and uh, to your last point, that uh, all USC needs to do to run the Pac-12 and maybe even go 12 and 0, considering they went 11 and 1 last year, is that their analytic profile needs to change. Only in that their defense can be like you know bottom fifteen, bottom twenty in the country to somewhere below average in like the 70s in EPA in in other advanced metrics SP plus beta rank although I understand that there's some variation in how they measure USC's defense but if they're below average rank in the 70s or even 60s defensively that that's a pretty damn good team and they might be competing uh, at a national level for something larger than just a Pac-12 championship. Matthew Bertson is is convinced that that's not a big enough improvement. Uh, it's not a dramatic improvement. Using positioning like that doesn't really make sense. What what do you say? How do you feel about um, uh, that? You know, where would you fall in that argument and thinking about what USC can compete for in their ceiling? Yeah, well, so, so with the offense being what it's going to be, um, I think, uh, you know, with Caleb Williams being there with the, the offensive line getting short up a little bit, I know against Utah and Tulane, they, they were not playing five starters. Uh, I don't even think they were playing four starters. And, um, and so that'll matter. Um, with, you know, Mario Williams is kind of on my dudes list for, um, for wide receivers, guys who have 13, uh, 13 plus average depth of target and six or more yards after catch. That's kind of a, the threshold of like, eh, okay, you you got something cooking here. Um, that's like Xavier Worthy, Jaden Reed, A.T. Perry last year, Zay Flowers. Those are dudes, right? And, and he's on that list. Um, the, the issue there is, okay, can the defense improve? I think one reason we have to talk about, uh, kind of average versus tails here and and separate out like what that number represents. Can they be 60th? Uh, looks at their schedule, right? I actually think it's better mm-hmm. for them that they do get a little bit of a ramp up and they know they're going to be healthy. But last year, I mean, that Utah game, that second half, that was, that was some grown men getting pushed around. Long season, thin depth, uh, injuries, and, and Utah really just was physical. And this season, you look at their – like they should be undefeated, ranked top five, going into a slate of – at Notre Dame, Utah, California, basically a bye, but then Washington, Oregon, US, uh, UCLA to kind of end the season there. That stretch is really, really tough. So I'm not as worried about the average of how the defense can can go if we're talking about their national competition so much as I'm worried about can they stay healthy long enough to take care of teams like on paper, they should be better than Washington. On paper, they should be better than UCLA. On paper, they should handle Oregon pretty decently, go toe-to-toe with them at the very least. But after playing Notre Dame, Utah, Washington, Oregon, UCLA, knowing that the you know you've got to win 
three of those four, two of those four against Utah, Washington, Oregon, UCLA to get to the Pac-12 championship, probably three of those four if you want to make the uh, the playoff. Uh, and if you mess around with Notre Dame, you've got to win all four of those. That's where this really gets tough. So to me, it's not about per se, how much the defense improves percentage-wise, more so how low is their floor? When things get bad, can they keep that floor high enough that their offense can still get them through some games? They are going to be white-knuckling some of these games and just hoping, you know, putting the putting the pedal down on the throttle, hoping they hoping they jump across the bridge, evil Knievel style, and win these games. And, the, the you know, the thinner the defense gets, the worse that's going to be. Um, and so I'm worried about more how the schedule stacks and the floor than I am necessarily, you know, if they're top 60, they're going to get there. I, I tend to agree that if they are a top 60 defense, the offense is going to be good enough. But injuries, depth, uh, all still really uncertain with how that schedule stacks up. Yeah, my concern with it is definitely that, like, even if they are top 60, we're adding two teams that are in the tail of the offensive EPA, right? We are adding Washington. We are adding Oregon. And they were one for three against teams with legitimate offenses last year. And so the idea that all of a sudden we're going to turn that one for three performance into a three for four, four for four performance against those teams, I, I think is wishful thinking, even if they do improve to a top 60, that that top 60 is still not good enough to contain top five, top 10 offenses. Good point. One last question about USC, because I think they will be, uh, I think most people are, I think they'll be the team to watch nationally uh, every year. And I think the uh, everyone here sort of ag- agrees with this. There's only a small handful of teams who can ever hope to actually compete for a national championship. Obviously, you know, teams who go 12 and 0 uh are not all the same um and we know we know that there's like you can count on your hands maybe even just a hand and a half how many teams can actually realistically win a national championship is usc one of those teams this year like genuinely is that or or are they just too far behind talent wise and all this other stuff i i really think that they're not um as as far behind talent wise you know i I think there's there's a couple um uh, a couple metrics like blue chip ratio and stuff that would suggest like, okay, maybe they're across the the sufficient threshold of talent. Uh, again, I think you need a lot of context for, for how those matter. Uh, I think that USC's offense absolutely puts them in a playoff caliber team. Um, I think you look at a team like North Carolina, for instance, that has a good offense or Wake Forest last year that had a good offense. And you can say USC is different in form and kind than them. Um, then you look at the talent level between them and a Washington, I think. Um, Washington had a great offense last year, didn't have the talent level that U- USC does. So I think that because of the base of talent that they have, um, they are among a team. You know, if I had to draw a circle around teams I thought would win the national championship this year, they would be inside the circle. Just because you get a guy as experienced as Caleb Williams in an elimination game, anything can happen there. And um, provided that that defensive line can be a little bit better. I don't think we're going to see like a Georgia TCU where it's, hey, this is a, a three and a half star roster playing a five star roster that, you know, UCLA or excuse me, USC has like a four and a half star roster. So I certainly think that they're in the conversation. I don't think that I would put a bet on them in terms of like a future or, hey, do I think it's going to happen? But if you're telling me, all right, if I have to pick the narrowest subsection of college football among which I am certain the national championship is going to come from, USC this year is in that, in that bubble. Yeah, that's good. Um, that, did you hear that, Matthew Hubertson? The our old eldest son agreed with me. Just letting you know. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, 
We've got Darren's one. Darren's got the Xbox, man. That's the only reason I'm choosing this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've got, this has been so great to talk to you. We've got one more question for you. What are you most excited about this upcoming Pac-12 football season? What are you, what are you uh, most excited to learn about, watch? Yeah, I mean, one, one it's kind of who can keep the eyes on the prize, knowing that like there's all this um, uncertainty about the future and, and everything there. Um, I'm interested in, uh, I already mentioned UCLA. I think that's going to be really fun. I'm, I'm interested in Kalen DeVore and with another year of Michael Penix. Um, it's kind of been the period where Michael Penix went from, you know, the COVID year at Indiana showing he had some of the raw talent. They made the biggest jump in pressure rate negatively, like, like allowing more pressure Indiana did from year to year that we've seen in like the last six years of college football. And he was really, really struggling. So I think we're at the point of transitioning from, Oh, it's nice to see Michael Penix be in a situation and be set free and be able to compete to, okay, man, like, who are you? What actually, are you just a college quarterback or are you something else? And so watching that unit with, with another offseason of Kalen DeBoer makes me really, really excited. Um, I think uh, Stanford hired the Sac State guy, if I am, I'm correct there about that. I, I think that we've looked at like Chris Kleiman and hey, maybe the FCS to FBS jump in certain situations could happen. Um, could, could Stanford be a place like that where they're saying, look, we got a little of the malaise out and we, we don't have to win in this like murder ball era that doesn't work, even though Stanford never really won with murder ball. They ran with, they won with like amazing out of the backfield wide receivers, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, so again, I think they're not going to win anything this year, but just, uh, what, what are the, what are the first principles? What are the foundations there? Um, this could be, this could be a Kyle Whittingham ceiling year looking at, um, you know, again, obviously been at the top in multiple different ways. Cam Rising's a little bit hurt. They've had some turnover. Uh, can they kind of replicate again? I think that's a storyline I'm looking at. And will the Pac-12 defenses kind of adapt to, hey, maybe we're going to be a little more run heavy, sacrifice a little bit of the passing, knowing that if we can take away some of those short plays, that's going to put teams in worse scripts. I'm interested in kind of the general equilibrium there. So those are a couple that I have circled. Obviously watching the Beavers, I think they're getting overhyped, kind of like 2021 <laughs> NC State territory where it's like guys the market the market fundamentals are there they are but let's pump the brakes a little bit and just kind of reasonably ascertain where they're at um but yeah so i think that's um i i, I think all of that's interesting um i i should be i should be sharper on this cam ward's back at washington state correct um, and so again, another year of experience guy who has an absolute cannon can they do something with it you know there was there was a couple games last year where washington state was like oh if we broke the right way, we're talking about a very different vibe in Pullman. So what are you going to do with the experienced quarterback there? I'm, I'm interested in that. And as I mentioned, uh, another big storyline for me is just UC, USC's defense. Um, can, can they can they have a run defense that's going to allow them to reach the ceiling that a lot of people think they should have? I think those are all great things to watch. And I think some of the things we've been, we've been sort of talking about and some new things that we haven't really considered. So... That's that's all we had, Parker. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. We learned so much from you today. Aside from your Twitter at Stats of War, where can people find your work? What would you like to? Yeah, so so Twitter is kind of the hub for all of it. That's great. Um, I do a little podcast called Purple Theory where we talk about the Big Twelve. Um, it was it was just TCU specific, but uh, TCU's made some personnel decisions. We're not interested in doing the day to day coverage of, so we're switching to the Big Twelve, and uh, and have been doing that this summer, and that'll be back uh, weekly. Bet US College Football Show. I know it's a betting show, but we really try to make it a college football show that just happens to talk about betting lines. Some good stuff with Gary and Kyle there. You can find them on YouTube, uh, and then I um, uh, the Sumer Sports Podcast is some NFL stuff that I'll do talking about stats, talking with smart NFL people. Uh, we, we do that a couple times a week and I have the Wednesday show. That'll be my own thing uh, here, here 
it every week and, and we'll brand it uh, uh, pretty soon. So go to, go to Twitter. You can find me at all those places there, but that's kind of where I'm at this. Uh, this Fantastic. Week. Go check out all of Parker's great work um, and follow him on Twitter at stats of war. All right. Well, that's all we had. Tune in next Sunday at 9 a.m. on YouTube or on Monday, wherever you get your podcasts, as we get back to actually talking uh, more 2023 Pac-12 football. If you want more Pac-12 stuff from us, you know where to find us. We're at NoTruckStops.com for all that. Go check out that lovely preview magazine. And hey, tweet us at your tweet us your thoughts at NoTruckStopsPod. And do not forget to like this video and subscribe to this channel. All right, let's get off this. That's Avery. That's Greg. That's Matt. That's Reed. I'm Carlos. Thank you again to Parker for joining us. Uh, thank you to all out there watching watching and listening. We appreciate you tuning in. We're eternally grateful. That's a wrap for us this week. We'll see you next time. And remember, there are no truck stops here. There's there's so many. There's so (laughs) many now.